Ah, the future. Things are going pretty well these days. Security, prosperity, technology. Work smart, not hard, that's what they say. Why bother with all of those hard jobs when you could just have a robot do them? Of course, some things never change. Parenting is still tough. But then, if you have the scratch, you can get a robot to help watch your kids. Amazing stuff. Like a whole new member of the family. Well, kind of. Today, we begin our journey through Asimov's novels with the classic, iRobot. We'll explore robotic personhood, robotic friendship, and the relationship of technology to our children. This is Galaxy, a podcast about the sci-fi literary universe of Isaac Asimov. Welcome to Galaxy. I'm Jason Stark. I'm Stephanie Yunker. And I'm Jacob Yunker. And as we said, we're going to start digging into iRobot. Yeah, I want to know, why robots? Because they're cold and distant. You don't have to deal with the... You can deal with all the deep emotional stuff without actually dealing with your own deep emotional stuff. That was deeper than I was expecting, but I'm not sure it made sense. Well, as we're going to go through each one of these, I mean, we're going to break this book down into several different episodes. I mean, today we're really just going to talk about one small section of it, and we're going to dig into why robots um, throughout all of that. Thank you, Jason. No problem. And before we get into this uh, this section of the book, I want to take a few minutes and go through some of really some of the context that informs this book. I'm not going to have to do that every episode, but I want to address some of the things that give the book the shape that it has. And if you've noticed, it's very kind of disjointed from one story to the next. Yeah, uh, it doesn't exactly offer an incredibly smooth through line. And there's a reason for that. Um, iRobot is an example of what would be called a a short story fix-up, and that is a term that's been given to this kind of book um, kind of retroactively since those kinds of books were popular. And a short story fix-up is um, a book where you take a bunch of separate stories and you bring them all together and you connect them in some certain way, you give them a through line of some kind, and you turn it into a novel. The reason that this became popular back in the 1950s was that prior to this time, most sci-fi, like the best sci-fi authors, or at least they they would one day become the classic sci-fi authors, they were really putting out a lot of their sci-fi into sci-fi magazines. Like Charles Dickens. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. He would serialize his stories and put them into the newspapers. Yeah, I think it was newspapers. Yeah, and so this is very similar to that, except it would be magazine publications, and obviously they would have to be much shorter than a than a than a book, obviously. But then over the course of time, um, this is kind of the era that would be called like the golden age of sci-fi, thirties, forties, that kind of thing. Some people will include the fifties too. But the 50s is kind of where the sci-fi novel starts to gain prominence. And so suddenly all of these sci-fi authors who have all of this material just sitting there in these magazines, they say, well, let's, let's 
put it into a novel. And iRobot is an example of that. So Asimov most likely didn't have the through line first. He probably had that, what, almost decades later. Well, yeah. he had robots. Right. And, um, and that's the thing, is the through line, which is represented mostly by the character of Susan Calvin, uh, she kind of creates the backbone of the book. And these different stories, I mean, it's like, if you think of it as like pearls on a string, each chapter is an individual pearl, and then the string is that through line that's been given to the novel to make it cohesive. And so that's why it has the structure that it has. And um, these stories were written between like 1940, 1950. Robbie is one of the early ones that we're going to get into today, and it was written in 1940. These stories appeared in the publications Super Science Stories and Astounding Science Fiction. And uh, the book is copyright 1950 by Gnome Press. So for some of the historical context, then, we have, obviously, we've got World War II as part of the historical context. And then as far as depends on when the story or the chapter was written, we also have the post-war environment and um, all the societal questions that come with that. And also we have the beginning of the Cold War and nuclear technology. And one other aspect that I want to get into would be robots as they existed in entertainment around that time, because oftentimes robots existed in entertainment as like monster figures, you know, like they're the 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 creepy bad guy in the serial movie of the of uh, of the, oh, yeah. the theater that you'd go and see on Saturday. Cyborgs that shoot lasers. Yeah, that kind of thing. And and so uh, that's another that's another aspect of it. And like I said before, this is all taking place in what would be called like really the golden age of science fiction. Another thing about that transition is that it's not so much about gadgets and technology anymore. That's still present in the literature, but the focus is now starting to actually shift to the characters themselves and the motivations and the cares of the characters start to become much more prominent during the golden age of sci-fi. This is the environment into which iRobot or its constituent parts enter. So as we talk about this, I want you to keep all that in mind and I want you to um, try to look at the story through that lens. The first story is actually called Robbie. Um, and that's a nickname for a caretaking robot that lives in the Weston family's household as a nursemaid. The daughter, Gloria, loves this robot. They're having a grand old time, and that's where the scene opens, is playing out in a field um, with a robot. Uh, we also meet Gloria's mother shortly after this scene, who seems to disdain and distrust Robbie, the robot. Mrs. Weston constantly nagging Mr. Weston to get rid of that Robbie. Um, after doing so, Gloria, the child, inconsolable. To try and correct this, they bring Gloria to a factory where robots are built to show her robots aren't people. And there they come across Robbie once more. Robbie saves the day from a potential accident that could have happened to Gloria. Almost had a life-threatening accident and only Robbie was the one that could save her. Which brings Robbie back home. 
So what was your overall reaction to the story? It really kind of has this Gone with the Wind vibe. Like, if have you read Gone with the Wind? Because it's no, I saw really the movie. thick. The movie is fairly close as far as I remember. But um, after all of the slaves are freed in Gone with the Wind, they the house slaves make... Um, make arguments and and they show that they don't want to leave the house. Now, I'm not sure how accurate that is historically because I wasn't there, um, but it reminds me of that caretaking where the tone of the story is so, it's racist, frankly, and, and kind of puts down the intelligence of, of the slaves and, and, and sets them as less than human beings. And in the same way, Robbie is less than a human being. And so did that hamper your your really your ability to enjoy this story? Like was that kind of a stain on it for you? I thought so. It kind of made me question why do we have robots? Because the robots aren't just robots. I feel like they're representing something. But how about you, Jacob? I mean, what was your basic reaction to this story? Did you enjoy it? I, I actually really found it interesting and invigorating because I, I get to work with kids a lot and have throughout my whole life just uh, with after school programs and coaching gymnastics and things like that. So when I saw Gloria being introduced as a character right off the bat who had weight and had sway and influence in a family household, I loved it, Um, which is not normal because, and as you see in the parents, um, children are often treated as one nuisance you don't want it to have worse. And, (laughs) oh, she's out there with that dangerous thing. I want to control the situation. Oh no, now she won't stop crying. I want to control that. Control, control, control. Um, but I, I thought it was really interesting to watch Gloria and Robbie's relationship go back and forth. Yeah, it's as much about, like we were saying before, it's as much about the importance of the people and what they experience as it is about the fact that it's a robot nursemaid. It's an innovative idea, but that innovative idea is used to further conversations about human relationships and human interactions. I guess the first part that I want to focus on is that scene between Gloria and Robbie as they're playing. I, I think this is a, an exercise in interpretation. And to do good interpretation, you have to start with good questions that you get out of, the, out of what you're reading. And I think my first question that I come across is, you know, what are we supposed to think about Robbie and his relationship to Gloria? I mean, how are they being presented to us? And I think that on the one hand, it's not the healthiest relationship as it's presented. Gloria is not an endearing character by any stretch of the imagination. No, she's definitely an average kid who has uh, a, a little, little bit of a selfish turn. I guess as we, as we get into this, I don't see a lot of positivity in the relationship as I read it. I feel like Robbie is, is basically, he's somewhere between a friend and a toy. And obviously he's a robot, so it's not as if he has the full spectrum of human reaction and emotion. We know he doesn't. And because he's mechanical, that means that perhaps Gloria has the leeway to basically use Robbie how she wants and not really have to care about whether or not his feelings are hurt. Yeah, there's definitely some objectification going on with Gloria objectifying Robbie, even though he's her caretaker. And of the parents, perhaps thinking of Gloria even as an object. Um, so, so it's not really healthy 
and she just has this opportunity to use something that is supposed to be caring for her and is human-shaped, which seems dangerous to teach a child who doesn't have a bunch of human interaction because she doesn't have siblings to socialize them to objectify something. Or even really friends. Yeah. It's just the robot. And I guess we could get into the question of whether or not this is... We have to talk about whether or not what we observe is something that was intended by the author or is just kind of an accident of the story. Is it that she doesn't have any friends because... Because he just didn't think about that part? Or is, is there more going on in the fact that she doesn't really have any friends that she plays with and it's just Robbie? That's hard to tell. And we kind of have to make guesses about that. Well, I, I found it really interesting that there's this objectification issue with Gloria on Robbie. And then later in the story, we have Mr. Weston trying to prove to Gloria that Robbie is indeed an object and not a subject who is alive. There's one more thing about this little part of the story that I want to talk about, and that is I'm curious about Cinderella. One of the aspects of the story is that Robbie loves to hear stories from Gloria, and the story that he loves to hear over and over again is Cinderella. What is the significance of Cinderella? I think the easiest jump would be to say that he's relating to Cinderella herself. I think so, because... And and the very last words of that section is when Gloria is beginning the story and is basically starting it off. Once upon a time, there was this lovely little girl named Ella, and she had a wicked stepmother and this naughty stepsister, and mm. she was this servant in the house. And and it's like this is Robbie's life. He's got this. He's got this horrible stepsister, if you will, who who manipulates and abuses him. And and you've got Mrs. Weston who absolutely despises his presence. I feel like Cinderella is supposed to be representative of that in a very interesting and kind of subtle sort of way that that really maybe kind of puts a ring on the nature of the relationships between Robbie and the Westons. Well, I think it makes you want to ask who would be like Prince Charming and did Robbie want to be out of that position because he's forced to rescue the daughter because that's his function. That's his only function is to take care of her. So, you know, Cinderella gets to get out eventually. Right. Yeah. There's a happy ending. Yeah. And yeah, that is an interesting question. What does a happy ending look like for Robbie as opposed to Cinderella? But I guess that also now leads, though, into the question, talking about those relationships. You know, why does Mrs. Weston dislike the idea of Robbie and Gloria so much? What is it that, that drives that, that distaste? Well, if you ask Mrs. Weston herself, she says it's unnatural. She says um, that a real human, a real living thing ought to be connecting with Gloria, that Gloria's missing out on a living relationship because she's doing it with Robbie and not with another person or she even says or even a dog. Yeah, there's something about connecting with life that is really important. So that's why having multiple children is good for a child because they have to socialize with one another and kind of bump into one another to figure out this is what it means to be a human being. Yeah, I think that there is definitely to a sense there's this idea of she wants Gloria to be raised with human interactions. And I think there's more more interesting stuff to that to come. Which again, makes me laugh because 
the mom is a human, the dad is a human, mm -hmm. and they're both inside, not going to play with Gloria. <laughs> well, I agree with you, but kids need kids. That's true. I just wanted to make that point. And Robbie has been with Gloria for two years, the story says. That is how long Robbie's been hanging out with Gloria. But I think that another part of this, though, and I think maybe one that I think comes out a little bit more clearly as far as Mrs. Weston is concerned, is I think she's afraid, ultimately. You could say, well, why should she be raised by a human and not by a robot? And I think that the why, one of the big whys is that she aff she's afraid that one of these days, something inside Robbie is going to snap and he's going to malfunction and something's going to happen to her. Again, this is all very complicated because they're the ones who gave Robbie to her in the first place and and didn't hire but purchased Robbie to take care of her. And so it's interesting to think about the, I don't know, the conflict inwardly that she's expressing here because on the one hand, they, they brought Robbie into the house and now she's come to fear that, that it might not be the best idea, which is interesting because, I don't know, as I read that, I thought to myself, you know, there's just as much opportunity, perhaps, that a human being could, in a certain way, lose it and snap, and something bad can happen to a child. Unfortunately, that is all too common of a reality. It makes you wonder, like, what is it about the idea of a robot that makes it different from the prospect of a human being who can have flaws that are arguably more complex mm -hmm. than the mechanical flaws of a robot and something could go wrong that way. Mm -hmm. I think one way that you could think of that is the rules are holding Robbie back and he just has the rules. So he just has Asimov's three rules, which, by the way, we should talk about at some point. You know, this time I just want to talk about the one because <laughs> they only talk about the first law in this. Awesome. And I want to go canonical here as far as as far yes. as as these things develop. So we only hear about the first law of robotics and that is that a robot cannot harm a human being. And Mr. Weston goes to make the point saying that before Robbie could even dream of doing something like that that he would basically break down because the first law is embedded that strongly into the positronic brain. But he only has the laws themselves and I would say that the laws are holding him back. They're not full of, um, I can't think of another word besides grace. So you, he doesn't have the spirit of the law. He doesn't understand that killing people is bad. He just understands that killing people hurts his, or that, that he would break down. So with a human being, the snap that they would have to have to harm a child would be more along the lines of like a moral corruption and a disregarding of the law. And it, it seems like that's more extreme, whereas with Robbie, it's just a mechanical error, and it's a thinner line between him being on and being off. Yeah, and I think another thing to add here is that not only is the first law that he cannot harm a human being, we'll get into it in a little bit. I don't think it gets expressed as clearly in this chapter, but a robot also, through inaction, cannot allow a human being to come to harm. This is just as much a damaging thing if a robot fails in its duty to protect a human being. Um, it, it has to prevent harm as opposed to just not harming. It also has to seek to 
protect. Mm-hmm. Which I think is a good attempt, as good of an engineer's attempt as you can have. At the spirit of the law. Yeah. Which I, I find that this whole conversation really interesting from a psych perspective, um, because this book was published 1940s, 1950s. The book was 1950. The short story, Robbie, was 1940-ish, something like that. Okay. So, like, at that time, um, there was a, a huge move. There's, there's a lot of things going on with psychology at that time, but one of them is uh, behaviorism, where you're breaking down a person to their mechanical parts in the brain and functionalism, right? So if, if a person um, is just, like even their moral center is just a wiring in their brain, it kind of makes you ask these questions. And theoretically, if we are just, can, if, we're break, if you could break us down to our parts, you could build one. Mm-hmm. And so ultimately, like we, like we heard about, Mrs. Weston convinces Mr. Weston that Robbie's got to go. Get him out of here. Yeah. and. Um, and I was also interested, now we're going to get into, I think, the discussion of the relationships between these family members, because everything that Mrs. Weston does as far as advancing the storyline is all very coy. It's all very sneaky, and it's not very direct. So does she say to Gloria, hey, we need to take Robbie away? We don't think that it's right. No, she doesn't do that. She has Mr. Weston take her to the movies, and when she comes back, there's a dog. And, and so Robbie's just been replaced, essentially, and she's assuming that Gloria will just be so distracted by the dog that, that everything will be fine. And like on the one hand, I get that, because sometimes you need to be able to offer distraction to a young child. Like when a child is so worked up and angry about something that they're throwing a tantrum, sometimes it just doesn't help to try to explain it logically, right? That doesn't <laughs> yeah, work. in that part of their brain. Exactly. And, and sometimes the distraction is actually more productive to help them cool down. And then afterward, then you can start to maybe talk about it a little bit more clearly, and that talk will actually get somewhere. Yeah, but you as a good father see that teaching your child is eventually the end goal. Yeah. Even if there's like a, hey, let's take care of your body right now by like giving, I, I don't know how you deal with tantrums, but I'm just going to use this really bad example of giving them a popsicle or something uh, to, to immediately cool them down and then going into teaching after that. Um, whereas everything uh, Mrs. Weston does um, seems kind of like a selfish resolution to conflict. Mm-hmm. Like if I don't have to if Gloria doesn't watch Robbie go away, then I don't have to deal with Gloria freaking out. And then later on in the story, now that she is freaking out, if she can just see that they're man-made, then I don't have to deal with Gloria anymore. It seems like very selfish conflict resolution from Mrs. Weston. Yeah, but you got to give Mrs. Weston a little bit of a break because it is the 40s and mm. she has been socialized very specifically to be a particular type of person. And so I think Mrs. Weston is truly trying to be a good mother and is perhaps doing it poorly, but her idea of a good part mother. of that is is societal. Okay. Right. You know, I mean it's like she's trying, but ultimately I don't feel like either of the Westons really know how to parent Gloria. I mean, that's why Robbie's there in the first place, I think. I mean, she says Ooh. that, yeah, it was great. In the first, you know, at first, you know, I, it took a load off of me mm-hmm. for Robbie to be there, basically. 
but it's devolved basically into Gloria only ever paying attention to Robbie. And it's really only potentially made something worse, I think. Mm. And then you have Mr. Weston, who is so non-interactive with Gloria almost throughout the entirety of the story. Mm -hmm. And it goes, the story goes to lengths to say he's gone a lot. And then he comes home and wants a few hours to himself reading his paper. You know, there's there's very little (laughs) interaction between him and Gloria, too. So it just seems like Again, I don't know if this is something that Asimov wanted intentionally to do in the story, but just analyzing the nature of these characters, it seems like the Westons don't really know how to best connect with her and parent her. Well, Mm. I think to kind of think about this, you have to have some background uh, knowledge on the American family at this time. So... As our as our country go, has gone on, especially kind of during this time, we see the fracturing of the family. So you get you have the nuclear family, just mom, dad, and the kids, and that is a really difficult environment to raise a small child in because it takes so much energy. I mean, Jason, you have four daughters with your wife, and that's got to be insane. But it takes a village to raise those four of them, and. Poor people end up with extended families around them oftentimes, or they end up on their own, and that's really very difficult on them. But if you're kind of rich, like the Westons are, you can afford to hire help, and that becomes your extended family. So Robbie has essentially become the entire extended family. Robbie's become the village to raise Gloria. That's interesting to consider. I hadn't looked at it in that way. I was basically just looking at it as more of like an extension of their shortcomings as a nuclear family, basically. But that is an interesting perspective to to give to it. Well, well, there there is a lot of exhaustion, it seems. Mrs. Weston being um, a woman at this time, being told that she has to do absolutely everything for this child. But as you just re- mentioned, uh, Stephanie, that it takes a village and she's one woman. So she's got like an emotional exhaustion. And then we see Mr. Weston with a mental, physical kind of exhaustion to the point where he doesn't even want to even try to do the relational part. Um, it kind of leads, lends itself to needing an extended family, like It's Stephanie very said. gender rolled out and very segregated mm-hmm. and, and, and pushed. And without any yeah. extension, extended family, they were able to purchase it very literally in the form of Robbie. And so the story presses on with this trip to New York because uh, Gloria does not... Um, she doesn't cheer up after Robbie's been gone for several weeks. She doesn't get over it. She doesn't forget, uh, like Mrs. Weston was hoping. So what does she do? She, she has the family go to New York for like a month, uh, in order to what? Get her to forget again. And so again, we have that, that tactic of kind of distraction. They go to this museum. I want to bring up this, this scene with the talking robot. Because oh, yeah. in the timeline at this point, most robots don't talk. They perform their functions, but they don't have voices. And she goes to the museum where the talking robot is present. And she is basically probing with questions, this talking robot asking, can you please help me find Robbie? And I found this scene to be fascinating because the talking robot is more or less just like a gimmick right now, as far as the universe is concerned. Nobody cares about a talking robot who can tell you math problems and what temperature it is. You know, it's like, what's the relevance of it? But people can like line up and ask it questions and and be impressed by it. 
But what happens when Gloria starts asking, hey, can you help me find Robbie? And the robot goes, "What is who is Robbie? And and she says, "It's he's a robot like you. And the robot says, a robot like me? Yeah, yeah, He except he can walk around and he doesn't talk like you do. And this robot is not equipped to handle logically the notion of a robot as a category that he is part of. He only knows of himself. He barely knows himself. Right. He knows of himself as an entity and that he is a robot. But he doesn't understand that robots, there are different robots. He's part of a larger category called robot. And this basically fries this, this, this robot in the process of these questions being asked. And, and, and like, it's all very, again, like 50s kind of corny and there's like smoke sizzling out of him. And there's probably like punch cards flying out of him and like a big <laughs> spring goes, yeah, and um, fire alarm starts banging. Yeah. And the technician guy who, who was supposed to be there supervising any questions that were asked to this robot runs in. He's probably got like a pencil thin mustache and like a white lab coat, you know, and, and he's complaining. <laughs> he's like, don't, I told you, don't, don't squeeze the Charmin. And, yeah. um, and so he, <laughs> And, and, and so anyway, uh, I was curious about that because I'm not I'm trying to understand where this fits in the story. Do you, I found it to be a fascinating scene, but I'm like, what what purpose does it serve? Susan Calvin is there. She's there as this young teenager who's, you know, writing furiously in a notebook, observing what she's seeing. And we can tell that's like a formative moment for her. I thought, is this one of those moments where this scene serves that larger purpose of the novel? Or does it serve a purpose for the story of Robbie and Gloria? Did you? Did yeah, you have I understand any where you're coming. Thought from. about that? I did. Um, it seems like, as far as Robbie and Gloria go, the whole point of this first story that Isaac Asimov is he, like, it's his first work, right? In, in this run, and he's trying to set the the groundwork for his audience to ask these questions. Hey, define life. Do that for me. Sounds easy, doesn't it? Well, it broke this machine. Define yourself. What What is self-awareness? Well, it broke that machine. Um, so I see the whole interaction with a child and a robot very interesting because a child is like, we all look at a child and go, oh, low processing. And we look at robots and go, high processing. And I think Isaac Asimov is trying to, with this scene, raise the point that we as adults might not have the answers that kids have or kids have questions for and that and thus we see the tensions with mrs weston and mr weston falling apart and all their schemes falling apart and so i think it's a it's a parallel for there are basic questions out there that we are not facing and that's fascinating that is an awesome answer because i i was honestly stumped again i loved the scene especially thinking about how robots as a concept develop throughout these novels. Mm-hmm. Um, but I had never thought about that. I, that's an interesting response. It seems perhaps like a leap for the author, but um, yeah. I, I, I think I would argue more for the scene serves a purpose of showing that robots have limits, very simply, Ooh. which I think is what you're kind of going for. And I think that's a, that's a, a again, it's important to reiterate that sometimes we can look at these stories and we're searching for meaning yeah sometimes it's very obvious that this is an authorial choice and sometimes it's a little bit murkier it's like is this something that the author intended or is this something that we as the readers 
are bringing into the experience of reading. Yeah. And the the fun part is is that both when especially when we're talking about novels and entertainment and things like that, yeah. both are valid. Yeah. Like regardless of whether Asimov meant that or not, there's value to what we're bringing as readers to the reading experience. To the discussion. Yeah. To you the the audience of the three of us, I am the one who's going to be making more mistakes reading too much into something all the time. So please push back on me as often as you can with all my way out there ideas. I want I want to hear it. I want to see the see where you guys are coming from too because you're a part of this. So the last thing I want to talk about as far as themes from the book, I, I obviously we've got this kind of climactic scene from the factory and I love this scene. This like this climactic moment where everything I think that is trying to be said in the story kind of clicks home. Because Glory is about to get run over by some mechan- some automatic truck or something that's driving down this pathway because she saw Robbie. And it was Mr. Weston's idea to bring them there because he said, like, yeah, we'll, we'll take her there and, and we'll demonstrate that robots aren't really living. and They're, they're put together and they're machines. And, um, and she sees Robbie and just goes berserk. Uh, with excitement and and runs toward him and nearly gets run over and we see the whole thing kind of play out in slow motion basically it all probably takes no more than five or six seconds in real time but as it's being narrated it's kind of slow motion mr weston is trying everything like leaping over the guardrail running as fast as he can but it's obvious that he cannot make it in time to prevent her from getting run over by this thing Robbie, on the other hand, has no hesitation. He, there is no room for hesitation in his mind. He is programmed to automatically respond to the, to the possibility of danger toward a human being and to, and to work to prevent it. And so he is able to move faster, think faster, get there faster, grab her without injuring her in the midst of that speed and cause her and prevent her from being killed. And so, one of the things that's often talked about with this story as a theme for it is technophobia. Mrs. Weston represents that. Mr. Weston taking her to the movies while Robbie got taken away from the home, you know, and they go see like, I think it's like leopard men from the moon, like another really <laughs> cliche 50s kind of thing for them to go see. But again, demonstrates this kind of monster movie sort of sort of air about things. And but what what the end of the story seems to demonstrate is that no this technophobia that that society seems to think about robots these days is really unfounded and if it were a matter of a robot needing to protect someone they could probably do a way better job of it than a human being could and that is what basically convinces Mrs. Weston to say like all right he can come back mm-hmm. and and that's and that's the end of it i i thought it was a an interesting ending point i thought i thought it was interesting because like i kind of wanted to see what the relationship would have turned into between the mom and robbie that's true uh, but we don't really get to see too much of that and it i thought it was a satisfying ending the first time that i read it because you do want robbie to go back you feel bad for robbie you feel like he has some sort of connection with this little girl Because she tells him stories, and it seems like he loves her, so you want them to be back together. And you feel bad for Gloria, because she wants 
him, um, she wants him back. But as we've been kind of talking about it and analyzing, if you replace Robbie with like a smartphone, something like that, you're like, oh, maybe this isn't such a good plan because she is kind of, she doesn't have that human connection. She doesn't, she isn't getting the the maturing and the human connection that you need to to grow up and and be a fully functioning human being even though Robbie seems like he really loves her so you feel bad for Robbie but at the same time I don't know that he's actually that good for her yeah it was touching it, the way that it's the way that it's presented is Mrs. Weston looks at them together her with her death grip hug around him and him with his very gentle strength um kind of holding on to her. And it's like there's this moment where she understands that nothing dangerous will ever befall her if Robbie is around. She's finally convinced. But like you're saying, that doesn't necessarily, it doesn't make a family member. It doesn't make a, um, I mean, essentially it is a machine, even though it's a very complex machine. Mm -hmm. And so that does kind of take some of the wind out of the sails potentially as far as what to really make of that relationship. To, to defend um, a different viewpoint for a moment, I think watching Gloria go from objectifying uh, Robbie a little bit as a, as a plaything plus to when he's gone, starting to see him as not just any old robot, he is my robot, and we're going to go find him. Because she sees a difference between robots. She slowly starts to go from objectifying Robbie to subjectifying him as Robbie, my Robbie, in relationship. And I think another viewpoint would say, I think the way it ends with them embracing each other um, goes to say that um, Robbie is now is a family member and is going to be something good for Gloria and is going to be um, a relationship that benefits them both. Um, instead of like a smartphone where it really only can be one directional. Yeah, I I like that. I like that it feels satisfying narratively, but I just have this reservation about the technology itself. One of the very most important questions that gets asked in this story has to do with, really, it's just the question, is Robbie a person? We are hit so hard on the nose with this question. It's right there. It's it's placed right there in that moment in the story when Robbie has been taken away and Gloria comes home to find the dog. She is not having it, obviously. And she says, why did he have to go away? Why did he have to go away? And she's just crying and bawling her eyes out. And Mrs. Weston says, why are you crying? I mean, Robbie wasn't, he's, he's only a machine. But her response is, no, 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 no. He was not a machine. He was a person just like you and me. And he was my friend. So this is being served right up on a platter for the reader. We have to talk about this. Yes. Is Robbie a person? Well, I'm going to ask the obvious theological question. What do you mean by person? That's, you know, that is where it's going to head, right? What yeah. is our definition of personhood? 
Because you can have a human being, and a human being is obviously a person. But you also, we think about uh, God in three persons, or you think about angels as persons, but they're not human. But for some reason, we don't think animals are persons. So True. there's a difference between a human person or an angel person, and that felt weird to say, and an animal. So there's a difference there. I've heard this characterized in this way, so I want you to check me on this if it's inaccurate. But one of the ways that I've heard this is that personality uh, which would be the mark of a person is the, is a, is an entity with personality. That personality is is comprised of a mind and of a will and of emotions. Is that too simplistic? I I think it might be because I am a horse trainer and I've worked a lot with dogs as well. And a lot of animals have they have will obviously because sometimes they don't like you. They have personalities. They're individuals. And they have emotions, and their emotions aren't as complex as ours. They're, they're not as complex. They're pretty much, you know, f- food, sex, sleep, don't hurt me type things. It's the id. Yeah. But they do have those things. Well, to, to push a little bit, there, there would be some worldviews that would say animals are persons and humans. Right, that's They are true. out there for that very reason that you bring up. But there's something special about human beings, and mm-hmm. we get that from our, our Christian background, our Christian worldview that says humans are stewards of creation. They're supposed to be taking care of the others and therefore over. But, you know, not all worldviews say I, that. You're right. And I think Asimov is also presenting yet another criterion for humanity, which is understanding narrative and, and story as it pertains to oneself. What an interesting thing to say. Yeah, you're going to have to break that down for me because I don't know if I'm tracking with you. Well, uh, when the little, with Robbie and the little girl, whenever they're interacting, uh, what Robbie wants out of that relationship is stories from her. He doesn't want anything else from her except stories. And that is probably one of the first moments we see some sort of humanity in Robbie because who doesn't love a good story? I mean, that's why we're doing this podcast, is we so love stories. I'm sorry. So you're proposing that taking in story, taking in narrative is part of what makes you, like a long-term memory is part of what makes you a person. If I were speaking purely psychologically, long-term memory would be a very important criterion. But what I'm, the point I'm trying to make right now with narratives is not just receiving them and having a long-term memory of them, not only realizing that you have a part in a story, but you have your own story as a person to tell and to share and to build. So a sense of individuality and a sense of growth. A metacognition, a sense of self. Okay. Would be, I think, another big criterion that's being presented. If you had the capacity to create a mechanical entity the positronic brain, not a physical brain, you know, what would it take to make that machine be considered a person? That's, that's a tough question. <laughs> I, all right, so this is, a, this is a systematic question, which are my favorite type of questions. So you've got to break it down into its chunks. So I think part of a person has to do with being a body. So there's something fi- important about a physical body, and Robbie has yeah, a physical body. Check so for that one. Check. There's something about growth. You have to be able to grow and change and learn. 
Does Robbie grow and change and learn? There isn't enough evidence in the story to say that he does. Okay, so like a little question mark next to that one. Okay, Uh, as Jacob is saying, interacting with narrative, interacting with story and having this metacognition. So you have to have a mind that is more than instinct. Yeah, if I had to guess, I would say that my 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 gut is that he is probably not capable of growing. And I, I maybe would say that because of, say, for example, the first law. I mean, obviously, it's the three laws, but we only get the first one in this story. He is he is hardwired to react in certain ways to certain stimuli. My guess is that he's probably not capable of growing beyond that programming. And I'm not sure that he has a mind that goes beyond his instincts. And his instincts would be the three laws. Uh, He can't move around those. To play devil's advocate, uh, one could say the fact that he likes stories is him learning. I mean, he can obviously learn in the sense of taking on new information. Like an AI that we have today, like for advertisements, algorithms. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, he can learn in a way, but not the way we're talking. And to poke on Stephanie a little bit uh, about his metacognition, we don't really have any say for or against that, uh, that ability. To perceive of himself as a person. I'm sure he perceives of himself as an individual. Which actually, I'm sorry to interrupt, but this is actually another thing here. When we talked about the computer that talks, and uh, yeah. I was really trying hard to understand what the purpose of that scene was in the story. I'm like, is it just part of Susan Calvin being there and weaving her in? But now that I've been thinking about it, I think that it's more because the whole point of the breakdown of the talking robot is that he has to come to grips with the idea of himself itself as one within a category of things, himself as an individual, and he can't handle it. What does that mean for the story? And what does it mean for like Robbie, for example? Can he handle the sense of his own individuality? So the other thing that makes a human being, and this is arguable, of course, because there are a lot of humanists who would say that um, the, the human beings don't have a soul. I respectfully disagree. There, there is something about a human being where the, the human is more than just a sum of the parts. And you can see this in, and we're meaning this respectfully, in someone who has lost brain capacity when they're brain dead. Their brain is still there and functioning, but there's something about the human that feels like it's moved on, even though we would still say that this person has dignity and they're still a human being, but it feels incomplete. So there's something about Robbie that seems to be missing. He is just the sum of his parts. And if you took a part away, he wouldn't remain what he is. So I I think it's questionable that he would be a person. So um, the last thing then, when it comes to this whole thing of Robbie as a person, after all that we've talked about as far as what it means, what personhood means, and whether Robbie actually qualifies for that, the other thing that Gloria says, he was my friend. If he's not really a person, again, we're kind of, we're kind of tossing this idea back and forth, but we're looking at a lot of reasons why he might not be a person. Is it possible for for him to actually be a friend to Gloria? I would say 
he's definitely not a human being. He might be a person that might be okay. And I think he can definitely be a friend. Because you can have friends with animals. You can have, you know, you can say that a tree is your friend, even if, you know, people might look at you a little funny for that. <laughs> I guess the reason I ask is that, you know, like, if he's just programmed to be a friend, is that really a friend? I mean, does a friendship require some sort of mutuality? And is he capable of exercising that mutuality? Well, I guess that's a good question. And there's the question of his will. Does he have a will? And where is his will? And he, and it doesn't seem, at least to me, that he does have a will and that his will would be to love Gloria, even though he's simulating that. Which is sad, because I just have these emotional instincts that are like, Robbie just needs to be loved. Yeah, I want Robbie to be hugged <laughs> the way he's treated by mom. Uh, and by Gloria, for that matter, frankly. You know, yeah, Gloria could have done Absolutely. some better. Well, she's a kid, but I mean, I, obviously, off. you know, she's an eight-year-old. And so you also have to consider whether what she's screaming about, you know, he's a person and I, he's my friend. You know, it's like how much of that is Asimov expressing um, Gloria as an eight-year-old and how much of it is him asking the big questions? I think it really is the latter. But you got to wonder, like, how is an eight-year-old going to react uh, and characterize their their robot nursemaid. So if he can't be a friend, again, we're not really kind of we're not really landing on a surefire answer, but yeah, it's it's quite possible. But at any rate, he's at least a protector, right? He's for sure wired to be a protector. I guess that gets down to it. If you had the opportunity to have a protector over your child that was a robot. Would you do it? Oh, that's a hard question. My instant yes and no depends on what it is. Because in some ways, when we have kids, yes, we will use technology to protect them, like a baby monitor. That is something that you would use to keep an eye on your kid. Um, and, you know, maybe like track tracking things or, or whatever you use. But those are all an extension of your senses. Yes. Like a baby monitor extends your ears, essentially, into the room. But a, a ro robot, on the other hand. But a robot would be its, its own senses and its own adaptations and own interpretations that never get to you. Yeah, it, ha it, ha it, is, it is making decisions. Oof. I, I would trust a dog, honestly. Like, I, I've worked with dogs for a long time. <laughs> but I've, not a robot. And I've worked with horses for a long time. Like, I would trust my horth, horse with a small child. She's very careful. You trust Cassie with me, so. You're very much like a small child. In that I way. am. <laughs> and, and I would trust a dog with a small child as long as it's not a rabbit dog. But, like, obviously, as a parent, you want to do all that you can to protect your child. So in some ways, you want to say yes, even though you're uncomfortable with it. But I really am not comfortable with it. And the reason is because there is absolutely no way you can get a robot that's perfect. There is always going to be a flaw. And true, the rules are there. Especially in Asmovian robots, they're, they've got the rules and they're not supposed to harm human beings. But there's a flaw. And you see this over and over again in Asimov's writings that the robots, they get a little broken. And that's because human beings are flawed. And 
really, every time you put together a robot and you yourself are flawed, some of that is going to transfer to the robot. And even if you get robots making robots to I, hopefully create a perfect robot, ultimately, it still has a genealogy that goes back to a human being. So there's always going to be that flaw. And I don't trust human flaws. My distrust of human flaws is so high that I, I don't know that I'd be comfortable with that. But your distrust of human flaws does not, uh, does not preclude you from having a human being be the protector over a person. That's true, because human <laughs> flaws are often negated by human love or human relationship. That was a really good line. I just want to it say was, that. It was, and my psych brain is very happy to it hear it. It was a good comeback. <laughs> it was a good, thank you. I'm very proud of myself. I've got research backing that statement. But a robot can't necessarily do that. And as much as I sympathize with Robbie and I want him to be human and I want him to be a life form, as much as I want him to be that, he's not. He is a feat of engineering. So, you know, I'd rather have something that loves my child, even if it's a dog and can only think so much, than a robot. What about you? I think... Would I buy a robot to protect my child? I think if it was the Asimovian robot, Robbie, and only Robbie. And I say that because Asimov is assuming that robots have a, have, they don't have that human flaw you're talking about. I don't think he thought about that when he was writing these. That's ridiculous. He's a philosopher. He should know this. Well, well let's go ask him as soon as possible. Well, I mean, he does, <laughs> he investigates over the ensuing chapters of this book. The many flaws that robots can end up having. Yeah, you know? I mean, they break in one way again. or another, and they and it has to get hammered out. Yeah, but it, but Robbie is very different and unique. In what way? Well, first of all, he doesn't have any kind of programming that goes haywire. It actually just gets more so refined. So far as you know, that's a good point. I don't know. I have some sort of leaning. I I wouldn't say like only Robbie. I wouldn't want to end up in a Weston situation where it's just the robot and and the child. I would want the child to have relationships that cannot be replaced. But there's something pretty nice about a robot's, you know, reaction times. And there's something like, oh, you know what? I'd almost want a robot chaperone, you know, instead of a like a bodyguard or a nursemaid. I would would have it like meandering the streets. (laughs) I don't know. It's like another thing that's occurring to me right now is that is when you said that Robbie's a feat of engineering, frankly, in a certain way, he's a feat of engineering like a seatbelt and an airbag is a feat of engineering. Mm-hmm. Yes. And you do not, you, you don't care about whether a seatbelt or an airbag loves you. No. It is designed. That's true. It is designed to operate at peak efficiency to save your life in the, in the event of an emergency. And that's it. And so I think that that's what kind of makes me think twice about whether or not I would have a robot as a protector because- yeah, it's true. It can't it can't really love. At best, it can only kind of simulate mm-hmm. affection or whatever. Um Yeah, the hugging is really a unique thing for Robbie. Right. But thinking of him as a seatbelt is kind of why I'm like, eh, I kind of like that idea. But the difference is Robbie is supposed to be a humanoid. He's built to be to simulate humanity as much as he can. And with the positronic brains, they're supposed to be functioning like human beings. Like they're so, that's where we're going with this is making them as close to human beings as possible. Why you would want to do that, I'm not sure because sometimes human beings suck. But 
It's fine. But <laughs> this is still a positive era. We're Holding still positive so about the future. Yeah. So many opinions being held back, I can tell. But <laughs> he is supposed to be as close to a human being. And while I agree with you about the seatbelt, like obviously you're going to put a seatbelt on your kid. And that's why I would almost say yes to having a robot because they would protect your child and they do have that reaction time, but they're supposed to be like people and that makes them different. Ooh. Yeah. Ultimately, bum, bum, ultimately the, <laughs> the design of the robot is meant to signify more than just a function. Exactly. And I think that again gets to this balance that's trying to be struck in the book between tool and, and servant on yeah. the one hand and companionship on the other. Objects and, I think, and subjects. And I think what we're getting to the heart of is that that's not a, that, that's a very, that's an incredibly tall order. If Robbie was a mechanical dog, I think I'd be okay. Yeah, I was just thinking about what if <laughs> Honestly, we took Robbie's Because it's less complex and he's not trying to be a human being with, he's not trying to make decisions. He's following, like, protect my pack. Yeah, if you we know? had a- It's simpler. If we had an AT very- ATV version, like a four-wheeler version of Robbie with a net that saved kids from the traffic. Like I'd be pretty happy with that. One of these days, talking about mechanical animals, one day, one of these days when we branch out from Asimov, we'll do an analysis of Android's dream of electric sheep. So that's hilarious. <laughs> we could do. There's a in Doctor Who. There is an, a dog, a robot dog. His name is K9. K9. I love K9. Oh, He's wait. Now funny. we have to now we have to analyze K9. No. Rude. So does that kind of round out our discussion for today? I think so. I have lots of feelings about small children and technology now, but uh, Never thought you would. I'm good. And it's given me a lot to think about too. So, you know, that door swings both ways for sure. We hope that you've enjoyed this discussion. We hope that you've been arguing with us from uh, the other side of your device as you've been listening. <laughs> and we hope that you want to come back next time. So we invite you to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Also, if you want to actually talk to us and not just scream at your device uh, because you disagree with us, you can head or to agree our- agree with us. Or, yeah, yeah. If you want to scream in agreement, that'd be great too. But <laughs> We appreciate that. You can head to our website, which is galaxypodcast.com and click on that contact button and send an email to us and we'll try to get back with you. So once again, we hope that you've enjoyed what you listened to and we hope that you come back again for the next episode. Until then, I'm Jason Stark. I'm Stephanie Yunker. And I'm Jacob Yunker. And this has been Galaxy. See you later. Bye, everybody.